What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On today's episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have Rod Jones and Roddy Woomble from the band Idlewild here to talk about the release of their 2005 album, Warnings Promises, out for the first time now on vinyl. For the very first time on vinyl, Idlewild has released their 2005 album, Warnings Promises, as a two-LP set. Warnings Promises is the band's fourth album, and their second to break into the top ten, following the success of their previous album, The Remote Part, in 2002, that reached number two. Warnings Promises saw them take a different approach to the writing process, involving the whole band for the first time. The album has a more stripped-back sound than their previous albums, and it features the singles I Understand It, El Capitan, and the lead single Love Steals Us From Loneliness. The band cites a bunch of classic influences on this record, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, The Birds, CSN, Little Feet, Fairport Convention. They combine those influences with the brand of loud Scottish indie rock they'd become known for, and they consider the songs as some of the best they've ever made together. Rod and Roddy from Idlewild, thanks very much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. So your fifth album, Warnings Promises, square in the middle of your catalog of releases, is coming out in November on vinyl for the first time in the U.S. and the U.K. It's got to be pretty exciting to see a record that's so highly regarded amongst the fans and the press to finally come out on vinyl like this. Yeah, I think it was quite strange initially why it didn't come out on vinyl, because up to that point, everything we'd released had come out on like not only vinyl, but cassette and CD. You know, it was before digital music was such a big thing. Right. Um, but for some reason, they made that decision not to bring it out on vinyl. Uh, and subsequently, fans have been asking about it for a long time, you know, so it feels like it's like long overdue for it to come out on, on vinyl. And we put together a lovely, a lovely package. It's like a gatefold 
package. And the artwork was very cool for that record too. So, yeah, I think it'll be something that, uh, that a lot of Idlewild fans will be kind of delighted to have. That's great. Is it going to be expanded artwork over kind of what you had originally? No, but because originally it was, didn't come out, I, I used to always think, well, I, I love uh, you know vinyl, I love records, I, I collect them kind of, and I love them as pieces of art almost as well. Um, but when we when we knew it wasn't going to come out on vinyl, we designed it specifically for the CD format, you know. So it was we had to change it a little bit just so it fitted into a you know into a gatefold. But um, yeah, it's all there's nothing extra added. If that, but the only thing that's extra is added is we released lots of singles from the record, um, which obviously never came out in America, but they came out over here. So we've included the single artwork inside because the single artwork was done by the same artists oh cool so it's really beautiful it's a nice it's a, nice, it's a really nice package for people yeah uh what's it like listening back to that record obviously i or you, I, I assume you probably listened in as you were putting it together and kind of revisited it we've been revisiting all the old records over the last while just trying to relearn them for anniversary shows more than anything but um, also um, doing a couple of Twitter listening parties and things, and yeah, it's it's funny to look back at because it, it was such an unusual way for us to make a record. That record as well, we you know we'd predominantly recorded in you know a residential studio in Wales or Scotland usually, and then you know, we were kind of transported out to Los Angeles, and um, it was a real yeah different experience. I mean, I suppose the music kind of soundtracked that a little bit and it, it sort of morphed as we recorded. You know, I think we went there with a rec- one record and then by the time we left, it was a completely different record. Yeah, and um, you, you started out writing and uh, for the remote part, your album from 2002, you wrote this way as well, but you went to the Scottish Highlands and kind of, I assume this is getting away from it all and really kind of getting into a rustic setting to write. What did, how did that shape the writing of the music? I mean, it always shapes it where you are and what you're doing, I guess. And I suppose at the time we probably had, I guess, a bunch of songs that were probably meant for the remote part still in our system. Um, And, you know, putting ourselves in that environment, we probably spent the first, you know, batch of songs that came out were probably remote part or remote part (laughs) B-sides, probably. (laughs) And then we, and then I guess we learned that you know we needed to do something different um and you know i think from from having a friend come up and listen through everything we've done um and being like well i'm not sure actually that you have got the record here yet or this one and this one are, are, are right um yeah it was it was fits and starts i suppose like uh, and we quite often do that with the record you know we'll start it one way and then finish it a completely different way and i think that was probably the height of us doing that kind of stuff it was really we were experimenting a lot. We, you know, we ended up working with someone different for the first time in a long time, um, putting ourselves in a different environment. Yeah, as I say, like the Scottish Highlands, taking those songs that were written there or conceived there, and then putting a, I suppose, three months in Los Angeles spin on them. They, they really changed into something else. You know, like it took on this kind of Americana vibe. The Highlands offer a sense of sort of reflection, really. I mean, just the amount of space, space to think, lack of distractions, and. We'd, during the remote part, we'd realised how important um, that was to you know create these songs because there was a lot of external pressure on the band because we're signed to a major label and you know, we were label mates with like Radiohead and Coldplay and you know you were almost being like compared to to them in that way and we you know so we found taking ourselves away from that into the Highlands which was an area that we you know I spent a lot of time in anyway 
it helped, it really helped us sort of develop and like, you know, like the camaraderie of sort of collective creative experience. It was pretty important. And then like Rod said, then, so we had this record written that was all written kind of like in the islands and we moved it to Los Angeles to record, which was a really kind of heady, sort of vivid time for us all in that time in our life. And it really brought something new out of it. And I think that's why Warnings and Promises is quite unique because it wasn't just, you know, written in, you know, Glasgow and then recorded in Glasgow or London. And, you know, that was the record done. It was, and I was actually started, we started recording it in Sweden. Whoa. We went, to, we went to Sweden in the winter to start recording it. So it was recorded in like, you know, it was like very dark and snowy and like we did five songs there. And then we, the record company didn't really like some of them. So that's why we went back to the Highlands after having previously been there. Um, and we finished off the writing of the record. And then they suggested, don't go back to Sweden, go somewhere different. And they suggested Los Angeles because Tony Hoffer, who produced the record, was based there. So it was a real journey, this record. You know, it's a real kind of, a, it go crosses continents. And yeah, it's <laughs> definitely an international recording. That's really yeah. cool. So... That must have been exciting getting on the plane, going to Los Angeles. I know you guys had toured the U.S. quite a bit mm. by then and played with bands like Pearl Jam, and I know you guys are friends with them, which is super mm -hmm. cool. Getting to Los Angeles, which studio did you guys work at? We were in Sunset Sound uh, predominantly uh, and then Sound Factory to finish the record. But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's history in that place. I mean, you're just looking, walking down the corridor gives you the – a slight case of the nerves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, uh, it was great. Uh, but yeah, what well, it was a great experience. I mean, you know, we're, everything you sort of touched would be, you know, that kit used to belong to Stevie Wonder, or this used to be, you know, this was broken by Mick Jagger, or whatever. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely you know, a lot of history there, and it's quite an inspiring thing to see, obviously, and be a part of. So, and we'd never really worked like that as well so we as I say we've been used to being in residential studios in the UK or even in Sweden um, so you know having this staying not staying in the studio and then going in and working for a set amount of time and then leaving uh, that was quite a new new thing to us I suppose yeah. and I mean it was quite a new experience for all of that and it was quite a fun experience for all of us because we'd never you know we'd usually be working till 3am and then going to bed and then doing the same thing again and all of a sudden we were in Los Angeles for a few months and recording till 8 p.m. and then going going to shows and yeah, doing fun well, it was so cool doing it like that because it just it, it let the, the the place the environment influence the music. Like Rod said, yeah. you're in a residential studio on a farm. You're just living the, the you know with each other and recording all the time. But this was an element. We were it was an element of we would record and think we'd got a song somewhere and then we'd go out and watch like The Walkman or Modest Mouse or all the bands that were touring that we'd go and see at night. And then we'd go to a party or a bar and be discussing something. And it would change the way that we would do the, you know, finish the song off the next day. So yeah, we were bringing, right. Los Angeles, bringing Los Angeles and the experience of being there in the summer and uh, and walking along to record shops like Amoeba and buying records and come back and listen to them thinking, oh, this is actually what we should be doing with this song. I found it a hugely inspiring place to be, Los Angeles. Yeah. I think we all did. Yeah. Uh, and it really made the record better. And now when I listen to it, when I had to listen to it, to, you know, the test pressing of the vinyl, it just brings that back straight away. It's almost like looking at a photo album of, you know, my time in Los Angeles. I can remember all the days we did the songs and what we were doing around that time. And that's what I mean by it. It's quite a vivid record yeah. for me, more so than a lot of the other ones, which, like I say, were recorded, written in Glasgow or Edinburgh, recorded locally 
that kind of thing, very much reflective of Scotland. Warnings and Promises is very much reflective for me of Los Angeles. But it's a nice combination of the two places, isn't it? Because those songs were kind of born in the Highlands. You bring them there, you transport them to Los Angeles. You take yeah. them on vacation, so to speak. <laughs> you know, you feed them an In-N-Out burger, right? You guys must have had an In-N-Out. One or two, yeah. <laughs> They're addictive. Mm-hmm. But you didn't totally finish the record, Nelly. Didn't you do some mixing in New York as well? Yeah, we went to New York and Michael Brower mixed it there. So we spent another probably a couple of weeks in New York doing that. I don't think he was very used to having the band around while he was mixing either, but we weren't very used to letting someone do it without being around. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Um, there was a, there was a, probably a sort of bit of a clash there for both of us for a while. But uh, yeah, I think had another couple of weeks hanging out in New York, which was nice. And Roddy, I mean, I think by the time it's just me and Roddy there um, and you, Roddy was about to move to New York, I think. So I remember sitting in a tea room and uh, probably Avenue A after we'd finished it, just being like, thank God we've actually finished it. Cause it did take a while, you know? And Yeah. You spent most of that year working on it, didn't you? Well, we started writing it pretty much just as the remote part finished. So we started writing it in 2003 and it came out in 2005 in May. So, yeah, it was at that point, it was the longest we'd ever spent on a record. Because up at that point, it was very, it was quite quick. You know, we'd like finish a tour, record, write an album, record it. But this was going to be the last record on EMI because we'd signed for four albums. And this was the fourth album. And we were very aware that if this did not perform commercially well, then we weren't, they weren't going to re-sign us or the contract wasn't going to be, you know, so we were, you know, and they want. In fairness to them, they knew they wanted to, for us to take as long as possible, so we could make as best a job of it. Yeah, um, they they were wanting it to be successful. They weren't trying to get us off the label. <laughs> right, of um, course. But ultimately, it didn't provide um, the money that they expected. <laughs> so, um, but you know, that's just, that's that's just part of the music industry, isn't it? Like you know, some bands aren't really designed to be on major labels for a long period of time, and we were one of those bands. We would have, in hindsight, probably be more sort of better off suited on a sort of sympathetic independent label, but that's not the decision we took right. early on. So we signed TMI and it brought us so many opportunities and great experiences, but Mornings and Promises was the last sort of major label record that we made, but we kind of went out with a bang. I mean, we spent like four months in America and like, you know, worked with all these producers and yeah, we had a great time. So yeah, uh, I, I, it's a record full of like, you know, good memories for me. And I think the songs are really good too. I mean, the songs are really strong. Well, I listened to a bunch of your stuff from before this record as well. And one of the things that really kind of struck me is it seemed like your vocals, both your melodies and your harmonies really started developing you know, you can hear the progression as you go through your albums. But I love the opening track, Love Steals Us From Loneliness, is a great example of this. You guys are really adept at taking a melody and just putting a vocal part to it without lyrics, I've noticed. How do you see your vocals progressing from your earlier albums, which, frankly, are straight-up punk? I mean, some of those songs with those drum beats, that's like suicidal tendencies. You just, you know what I mean? Yeah, band I love. Yeah. yeah so I- um, well, I mean, I remember there was a review at the time that said, Mornings and Promise, some of the choruses have choruses. Yes, thought, great way to put it. That was quite fun, but but that's the way that we've always kind of written, is like, it's one chorus is not enough. <laughs> so we need to find <laughs> another part that is maybe not as catchy, but as, you know, we, we're always looking for catchy bits that can connect. So um, 
But Lost Deals of Loneliness, the, the whoa, whoa, whoa bit is kind of a chorus. Yeah. But then it also has a chorus. You, know, you said something stupid like Love Steals and Loneliness. So, yeah, and I think that's the premise we worked on in quite a lot of those songs. We were like, right, we've got the chorus. Let's get in chorus two, which is sometimes what we called it. <laughs> we have like a very chorus one and chorus two. And, but I think that's that way of that, almost that sort of mentality of writing pop songs um, that I, I, we got really into around that point. It was, doesn't have to be like a pop song as in like, you know, talk, you know, the stuff that's in the charts. It was like, we were writing songs in the way that I guess, I don't know, like sort of songwriters in the 70s or something would approach them. We were always looking for the best possible tunes and the best sort of hooky melodies and things like that. So yeah, and quite often a way to make that memorable is not to have words. It is like a la 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 or oh or It's funny, it's one because, I mean, obviously that record was not as commercially successful as certain people would have liked anyway, but um, and that song has become a bit of a fan favourite for that reason, I think, now, you know, and I think when we came back after a break and played our first London show in a long time, um, we were all quite taken aback by that, you know, that sort of sing-along nature to that one, where they just carried on for quite a while after the song had finished, which never really happened to us before, <laughs> so we were all kind of not not really knowing what to do with ourselves, you know. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a fan favourite these days. Huh? I think it's easy to sing along to when you're drunk, which is <laughs> what and the audience in Scotland for half an hour. So. Yeah, without sloshing too much of your beer out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you got some different instruments too. I mean, El Capitan opens with piano. That's a different approach for you guys for sure too. So, And Rod, some of your guitar tones, I love the variety that you get. Who are your influences and who influenced, did you pick up new influences as you went along? I think you always do, don't you? I think, yeah, yeah like early, early doors would be people like Bob Mould and Thurston Moore and uh, I was Bob Mould specifically at sort of Copper Blue era. I was just such a catchy guitar player. Um, and I suppose people like Peter Buck. Um, yeah. Not, you know, I was never really into people like Eddie Van Halen. You know, it was more the more because I didn't really wasn't able to play like that either. So you know, it was like people like Peter Buck and and and, and Thurston Moore, kind of the anti-hero, anti-guitar heroes, were always my, uh, I suppose, influences in that way. And then I suppose as time went on, yeah, and especially on that record, starting to listen to more, I suppose, more seventies musicians. Um, What's the Neil Young a lot? Yeah, a lot of Neil Young. I mean, yeah. and again, similarly, like, although he's a fantastic guitar player, Neil Young, like, he quite often plays in a way that doesn't sound showy. You know, it's always a bit ragged. And, yeah. and I think that, that, that appealed to me, certainly. And I think, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to err on the side of ragged, sometimes by choice and sometimes by necessity. But um, I think, yeah, it, it started to embrace a bit more of that Americana, I suppose, around that time. As you write records and as you do this for as long as we have been there, it's almost, you know, you're constantly re-educating, you know, you're surrounding yourself by so much 
that you, you of course you kind of take those things on board and you you don't necessarily know that you're doing it sometimes. You know, maybe the tours that you've done or the, the bands you've been around and, you know, and that was, I suppose that was the thing, you know, with El Capitan, it was the thing of, it was very much a very old Vital World kind of hooky guitar part. And, and I think both me and Roddy, I think the rest of the band had gone away actually at the time and me and Roddy were both a bit, it just sounded a bit straight. Um, and, you know, we'd become quite friendly with the Walkman who were in town and, We'd asked Paul if he wanted to come down and play some piano um, and see if we could turn it into something different um, and just took all the guitars out. Um, uh, and yeah, almost instantly just turned into something much more interesting. And then we started to put a few guitars back in and then I played some clunkier straight up piano and then it sort of came, sort of came together into this kind of weird pop song. Um, and sometimes that's the thing you've got to do. You just got to, if, if it's not, quite right but you feel I think we always knew it was a really good song but it wasn't just wasn't right um something just have to throw it away and, and come back to it from another angle by the harbor One thing I think about um, Warners and Promises was that up until that point, we'd always been seen as kind of as a guitar band. So it was all about like, you know, you know, riffs and, uh, and, and that was what I, like what I was saying there, where it's one thing we kind of were happy to get away from was like, it's not working like this. Let's just take the guitars out and sort of reconstruct it with a piano part. And that's why there's not, it's not such a sort of show-offy record. It's quite understated in that way, I suppose. Like the guitar parts, when they happen, are great. But they're not all the, you know, they're not in your face the whole way through it. Same with everything else. It's not like in your face as a record. And I think maybe that's why it initially took Idlewell fans by surprise. Yeah. Because they were expecting the remote part number two, you know, that kind of big anthemic thing. And it was a lot more subtle like that. And the musicianship was a lot more subtle. The lyrics, the delivery, everything was a bit more, you know, there was acoustic guitars and there was pedal steel and there was pianos and there was girl, you know, female backing vocals. and Yeah. Uh, and there wasn't loads of overdubs, so it was all, you know, there was a, a lot of space to the music. And I think a lot of these things took uh, fans and fans of the band by surprise, and they didn't create a backlash. It wasn't that bad, but there were certainly people that were like, oh, I prefer the early stuff. That's when we started to hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to be the divider between, like, early stuff and this, oh, this is our later stuff now. Yeah, you know, that was, right, I, right. You know, and you just, uh, if you're operating as a musician and you're working on song, you just kind of accept that and move on, you know, you carry on. Yeah. But that was definitely a, a divider for a lot of Idlewell fans. But then it's interesting now, now it's coming out in vinyl, but what, what is it, like 12 years later or 15 years later, remember it was, for tw 17 years later, I think, to when it actually came, came is that right? 17, came to 2005? Uh, 16. 16 years. 16 yeah, years. 16. Yeah. So 16 years later, it'll be interesting to see how people reflect on it and, you know, how, uh, you know, how, how it's judged now. Because at the time it was judged, I would say it, it got mixed reviews. That's how I would say. Some people loved it and thought we were like the new REM and we got a lot of that. And some people thought we'd lost it. Like we've literally like, you know, we were a really cool punk band and now we were like middle-aged, even though we're all in our 20s. 
we were right. still, you know, we were like making the most boring music possible. So it really <laughs> split people down the middle and ultimately did prove to be our last record on a major label. So it was a real changing point in the group and the way that people perceived the group. But I still think, you know, it is a it does really hold up because it's a really strong collection of songs. And I really feel that now it's out on record, people will be able to enjoy it again. Oh, yeah, it'll sound great on vinyl. Well, it's like you said, Rod, after you guys took a break and you came back and you played some songs for this album, sounds like you were taken aback by how much the audience gave back to you when you played those songs. And I think that shows you how they connected with your fans. And, you know, mm -hmm. you can't listen to the same type of music. I don't listen to the same type of music I listened to when I was 15. You know, nobody no. does. You've got to have something that challenges you and, and grows with you. And it sounds like you guys just were growing and changing. It's not like from one album to the next, it's completely different bands. You can hear the progression, which is really cool. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, that, that was obviously a few different factors. And that once we had, like, after the remote part, our bass player left and two, we got two new members join. And that brought a whole different sphere of influence to the group. Yeah. Uh, also, we were older. I mean, we were 19 when we formed Idlewild. And by this point, Warnings and Promises, we were kind of like mid to late 20s, 26, 27. So that's a significant change from 19. Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, we were, starting, we were getting older. We are getting better at, better at being musicians, better at like, putting our ideas across. And um, So, yeah, it was a real, it was a sort of a, yeah, it was an important record to make in the time that we made it. Yeah. Uh, Colin Newton, your drummer, he's been with you since day one too, hasn't he? Yeah. 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 And I think that's really, it's like to have a drummer that plays the way he played, which was so forceful and upfront on your early stuff, especially your EP captain, to have him really just like lay down these grooves that you hear on Warnings Promises, it's, it really shows like how he was able to grow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because with a band that would change that much, Sometimes a drummer is not that pliable. And he doesn't get it. I don't like, we didn't really give him enough credit for that. <laughs> we probably gave him far too much of a hard time, actually, as well. <laughs> and like, I suppose it was Colin, was, Colin was probably the least confident of, of us all. Uh, not like Rob Brimmer with confidence. You've got the insecurities like any, any creative people do. Sure. But he was the one that was always had to be pushed a bit more and pushed into different things. But like, you know, listening to Captain and listening to Warners of Promise, you see how well he's adapted and coped with that. Absolutely. And you think about Colin is he always sort of drums with the song, partly because he's not technically gifted in that way that he's going to do loads of, you know, drum rolls and try and, you know, try and get his, put his mark on the song. So he always drums, you know, exactly what the song needs. He provides a drum for that. And that's, in a weird way, a kind of characteristic of the Idlewild sound, I suppose, is his, his drumming style. Because it's not flashy or showy, it's like everything's there that needs to be there, but um, not, you know, not too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, playing for the song definitely is more of a vibe, like you said, Rod. You, you know, Eddie Van Halen. You can appreciate him, but you can't play like him. I think a no, lot of musicians not. feel that way. They're more <laughs> like, all right, David Gilmour, he's my man. If I'm going to cop somebody's <laughs> lead, right, I can try to try to work on the tremolo or the vibrato, but. That is, or you mentioned Neil Young. There's something about the way he plays, and it's a little bit, it can be messy, it can be crude, but you can't deny that it has this vibe and this energy to it. And this band as well. I mean, you know, yeah. like from various incarnations of them, they're never, it's never that showy. It's never like too groovy. It's quite often quite straight, actually, against what he's doing. And it, 
that's what makes it stops it being a little bit snide from time to time, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually, yeah, th- th- there was a, there would be a danger. I think if we were if we were all those kind of session players and made that record, that it would have sounded too slick. I think. Oh yeah, you know, totally. There's a sort of a there's a sort of a charm to us attempting to make a Steely Dan record, almost. You know, <laughs> it's like. One thing that Colin played that I really liked a lot too, that uh, it was another song that has one of your second choruses, like you mentioned, Roddy. It's I Understand It. I love how there's the part that goes to the double time. (laughs) And it's somewhere in the middle and then at the end as well too. That kind of stuff, would you just come up with it in the studio? Or when you're writing, do you hear drum parts in your head that you suggest to Colin or is it all up to him? Usually we just kind of jam out the ideas that we have with him and, and he would come up with something and then we'd probably give him a hard time and then he would come up with something else. <laughs> and then, I think with that one, actually, funnily enough, the drums for the, that song were actually recorded in a rehearsal room in London um, because we'd actually started that one with Dave Ellinger, um, who'd done our previous records. And we'd, we'd recorded a version of it in Sweden and we'd recorded a version of it in a practice room in, in, in London with him and we were demoing it and kind of jamming the ideas out together. And that one just worked really well. Um, and it's one of those things where we just kept it and, and sort of built on it. Um, so it was probably the one song that, yeah, it was done in a completely different way, like the yeah, kind of polar opposite to Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. It was done in Hackney in a rehearsal room. Yeah. In many ways, I think Colin's actually quite a creative drummer in the way that, like, you know, when you go into a studio and you're, you know, the red light goes on and, like, you're recording your part, he's not actually great in that circumstance, but he's good at coming up with stuff and, like, as I say, that works with the song. So I understand it's a good example of that because we weren't in a proper studio. We were practicing. Yeah. We just recorded the drums. It's a really natural, creative part that he's put to the song. Uh, and, he, and there's other examples of that throughout the Idol Records when he's been able to do that. And some of the other performances when he's, you know, under the spotlight with the, you know, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's been more of a struggle to kind of get to the finished result. But yeah, I do think that the, the, the drum parts are, are the, the whole album is quite tasteful. It's not like, uh, like Rod said, if it was session musicians playing it, it would be probably the most boring record of all time. But we bring our own kind of inconsistencies and ideas with that on those songs. So those songs have much more, per- they have personality. Oh, lots of personality, and, yeah. And that's included in all our kind of like, you know, the idiosyncrasies of how we play guitar, or Rob plays guitar, or Colin plays drums, or I sing. It's all there, you know. I understand it, I don't show it. It's the 25th anniversary of the band. Congratulations. A lot of bands don't make it for one-fifth of that, so that's quite an accomplishment. They have all these records out, too. You guys also have a new book out entitled, In the Beginning, There Were Answers, 25 Years of Idlewild. How'd that book come around? Originally, we were supposed to celebrate the the anniversary with some gigs in, uh, in the UK, which have been postponed till this year, from last year. And we wanted to bring out something to commemorate that, or like a, something for fans. So rather than 
you know, you know, I, we've I've always written, I've always kept diaries and things like that, and I've all, we've always taken photographs. I had friends who took lots of photos, so there was quite an archive there. So over uh, the winter, we put together this book, um, originally intended simply as like a, a almost like a, a merchandise item, something for fans to buy, something mm-hmm. for fans to enjoy around the 25th anniversary shows. And obviously, they were postponed with the pandemic, so but we still put the book out. And I think the book, uh, well, the, the reactions we've had from the people that it stands alone as a lovely book. You don't have to be a fan of, of Idlewell to enjoy it as a story, because uh, it's about fifty thousand words of text. It's all told through the through images as well. We did a really good job with the, working with the designer of making something that people want, you know, for their bookshelf, for their coffee table. So it was a lovely project to do, and um, you know, and it's been selling well. So hopefully, we'll reprint it in time for. The shows, if they do happen in November, who knows? We're still waiting to see in the UK what happens with with gigs. Did you sell out the first printing? Not quite, but there's not that many left, so wow. I think we'll need to reprint it for the, the shows. Well, congratulations. I think, to be honest, people uh, people were so disappointed that they couldn't make the gigs that maybe more bought the book than would have maybe bought it originally. Do you see what I mean? Like They <laughs> yeah, were so right. disappointed yeah. that they, they, everything was cancelled last year. They're thinking, well, I want something. I want I want something new. I found that I think a lot of people are still, because they can't go to concerts and they can't do things they normally do, they're hungry for something new, whether it's a new album or a new song, a new book, anything. Yeah. There's still the appetite is there for, for new art and new creations and yeah. uh, everyone's trying to find it. Have you guys been doing a lot of writing during the pandemic? How have you been using the time? creatively or so i know that i talked to some songwriters who really just feel almost depressed about it and they don't they can't produce anything and then some people are incredibly prolific how has it affected you guys as writers well i made a solo record i did uh, um i make solo records sort of intermittently in between all the idol ones so i worked on that last year mainly work, were recorded remotely with a few people that i work with and then uh, that's that's principally been my and then rod and i managed to meet up last year twice to work on songs when the pandemic allowed, because we live the other side of Scotland. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we're going to do more of that this year. Now things are starting to ease off. I'm working on a new project together. Whether that's either well, I don't know. You know, we'll just have to wait and see. But so yeah, we're still kind of keeping busy, but it's been much easier to do things remotely than it is getting, you know, meeting meeting together. Well, Rob runs a studio too in Edinburgh, so he's pretty busy with that all the time as well. So the studio you built yourself, Rod? Um, it was one I took over about five years ago um, and been running ever since. Um, so, yeah, I've been actually working, mixing and producing quite a lot over lockdown, to be honest, um, doing some remote stuff with people, um, sending stuff in and finishing off other bits. And, yeah, I've, I've had a pretty busy uh, busy year, to be honest, and um, working on a, a managing a young artist called Hamish Hawke. Um, so, yeah, that which is takes up a lot of time and have a newfound respect for our manager. We don't have respect <laughs> for before, but I'm now, I'm now aware of how difficult it is. Um, so yeah, that, that takes up a lot of time. Did you guys reschedule your tour dates that got postponed? You're playing later this yeah, year, correct? In a year. So we just thought, let's be sensible and just go back a whole year, um, which at the time people were like, well, that's a bit too far. And now we're, looking at the possibility that they might happen and thinking that's yeah. probably the right decision. Yeah. Um, I think it will really, happen in November, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it's like in America, but here people, that's the last thing, that, you know, pubs have started to open and but restaurants and stuff. 
there's no answers for how you're going to get a group of people into a concert hall to watch your live band yet. So, you know, the, the, we're, our shows are in November now, and that almost seems like that'll be the first, sort of, around the first time that that happens. But yeah, I like Rod, I mean, like Rod said, I mean, if they get moved, they get moved. I mean, there's so many shows that are going to get moved too. It's not just our gigs. Yeah, right. Did you guys set up a, uh, I read something about a benefit for crew members for. Oh, that was Rod's project, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically, I just saw that um, our live crew and lots of our friends who work with lots of bands, and I, I'd just been looking at Facebook and, you know, a lot of them saying they hadn't been getting any support. And the nature of the business, you know, the nature of the music industry itself, and especially if you're a live crew, is that you don't necessarily fit into the support bracket that, you know, um, someone who works in a shop or as an accountant does. So, um, so a lot of them have fallen through the cracks and so we just thought it'd be good to do something to raise a bit of awareness and a bit of money um, and yeah a few a few sort of brainstorming ideas um, we came up with this idea that we get the crew to cover the band that they work for and then get the singer from that band to sing a song um, and then sell it to raise money and I was I think more than anything else. I mean it, it raised a bit of money which went to anyone who applied, we just sort of split it evenly. But more than anything, I think it was just the fact of going out and actually doing something and making yeah. some music and like I think, you know, seeing like three or four crew guys sort of caught in each corner of the room like chatting to each other and finishing something rather than like cancelling a hotel or a van. Um, I think was uh, I think that's what everybody took from it more than anything else. Um, and, and yeah, it's quite a good record. But like the, some of the songs of, you know, I think there's definitely some nervous band members now. Like, I think. You know, <laughs> well, now you yeah. have some possible replacements should somebody yeah, back out of a tour, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us the name of that album. Uh, it's called Whole Lot of Roadies. I <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> And did anybody cover any ACDC on it? I have to ask. No, unfortunately, we didn't get any group. I mean, they are technically Scottish. So, I mean, it was mainly Scottish. It was all Scottish bands. So. Um, but, yeah, it was quite a good list of bands. Bell and Sebastian, the Rizillos, T- um, Proclaimers, obviously, ourselves, and um, Catherine Joseph. Uh, it was, yeah, lots of really great bands. <laughs> That's awesome. What song did your roadies cover of yours? Uh, they did Captain. And they chose that one. That's awesome. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. Looking forward to getting this album, Warnings, Promises, on vinyl this year, finally, for the first time. Great. Well, thanks for having us. Looking forward to it, too. Thanks very much to Rod and Roddy from Idlewild for joining us here on the Rhino Podcast. Their 2005 album, Warnings, Promises, is now available as a two-LP vinyl set at rhino.com. Take care out there. Thanks for listening, and happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.